had a chance to go over there and export a little Second Thessalonians to the valley, and that was pretty exciting. Um, hey, before we get going this morning, there is a lot for us to be praying for uh, this week. Has anybody felt a little bit of weight this week, a little heaviness, uh, everything from uh, the elections and just kind of all the discord and uh, nasty conversations and and just stuff, whether it's social media or the disunity it seems to um, to breed. Um, and and I can feel heavy. Um, and then, of course, there was the, the shooting down in California, uh, just off the campus of, of Cal Lutheran and amidst the colleges there, and, and, and just so so dark and so heavy. And then the fires in California. Um, so we want to be praying for all those things. We want you to know that... Um, We'd ask you to specifically pray for uh, Paradise Foursquare. We've got a Foursquare church right in the middle of Paradise, California, that was burned and completely wiped out. And quite frankly, most of their congregation have been burned out of their homes. Uh, So far from the reports that we hear, uh, nobody has lost a life from Paradise Foursquare. So that's good news. Um, But you can imagine trying to rebuild your church when you're even when everybody in the congregation is trying to rebuild their own homes. You know what I mean? Just really hard. Uh, one of the good news there and the blessings that we can be thinking about is just a few weeks ago, Pastor Dave Each was here, our district supervisor, and he talked to you a little bit about how all of the tithes that we send, you know, as a church, we tithe to Foursquare, and all of those tithes um, are allocated to different things, and a portion of them are, is always allocated to Foursquare disaster relief. And he showed you some pictures of some things that were happening. And we want you to know that Foursquare disaster relief has already released um, thousands of dollars to Paradise Foursquare Church and the families there, and we're already on the ground at work by an extension of you and all that you give. I mean, how amazing is that, what Jeremy just shared about how the things that we do in our little church just extend and reach out. So let's just take some time to pray for those things. We also want to pray for our, our folks that are finishing off their Israeli trip. We want to make sure that they finish strong. Um, couple specific needs. One of the ladies on the trip kind of tweaked her knee yesterday, so we want to be praying for her. Um, want to be praying there in Jerusalem right now. They've been in Jerusalem uh, yesterday, today, and just a time of uh, talking to Pastor Dan last night, just a time of heightened spiritual awareness and all that is going on. It's really um, just an amazing time to be shoring them up and covering. So can we just take a second and pray for all those things? If anything I just mentioned is on your heart, just feel free to pray for it, and I'll just kind of lead us. Uh, Lord, we just come before you in need today. Lord, in the middle of our, our darkness, in the middle of our discord, in the middle of our society's lack of hope, God, would you be hope? Would you be hope in us? Would you be hope to them? Would you remind us that you are still on the throne? Father God, we give the cares and concerns of our communities to you. Lord, we lift up the families and the victims in, in the shooting in California. Um, God, we lift up the students of the colleges that were all in that area there on college night at that particular bar. We lift up specifically the, the kids at Cal Lutheran that are so close by there. Lord, would you uh, just find a way, like you supernaturally do, to heal uh, confused hearts and broken spirits, families that have lost loved ones. Um, Lord, we can't imagine the tragedy, but we can imagine a healer and a savior. So would you be that for them? For the folks that are dealing with the fires in California, Lord, would you give them wisdom? Would you give the government agencies wisdom? Would you give the churches in that area wisdom in how to share your love and how to be a shelter for those in need in a very tangible way? 
Um, Lord, for our brothers and sisters at Paradise Foursquare. Uh, Lord, we can't even imagine the unimaginable, but we can pray. Would you put it on our hearts to pray for them every day over the next few weeks? Um, Lord, we're thankful that their hope is found in you, that even in this tragedy, that they could be a beacon and a light that would draw people. Lord, they might not have the building um, that they used to house themselves in last week, but they still have the person in you that they've always found their shelter in. So would you let them be a lighthouse to those around them? And continue to bless Foursquare Disaster Relief and all the things they put their hands to. Lord, we lift up our team our, um, on their trip in Israel. Lord, would you be with uh, Pastor Dan and the whole team. Continue to bless them. Uh, give them great wisdom. Give them a fun time. Lord, today specifically, would you just um, give them a, a respite of joy somewhere, somehow, somewhere along the line. At, at, a, at a stop for lunch. At a stop where they're sightseeing. At a... Just a moment, God, would you just give them a fun day today and help them to finish strong and grab the hold of the things that you have for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's a lot, huh? Good stuff. Continue to ask you to just pray throughout the next couple of weeks for all of those things. Um, and here we are in Second Thessalonians. We've been about 10 weeks or so. Um, and we've been doing our best to encourage you all to say it with me. To stand firm and hold fast. And this is it. Today's the last day in Second Thessalonians. You never ever have to read it again. No, just kidding. Of course you do. <laughs> it's been a great ten weeks. It has been fantastic. But today I want to answer one big question. If I'd have had time this week, I would have made a little sign to attach here that said, Why? We've been asking you to stand firm and hold fast. And it begs the question, why? Why? And my hope is that we'll have a better understanding of that as we move throughout our morning. If you'd open your Bibles this morning with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the passages we're going to focus on today are at the very end. And we're going to pick it up with the last couple of scriptures, a couple of them that we talked about last week with Pastor Randy. And then in the final two verses of the book. So we'll pick it up with verses 14 and through 18. Paul writes, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter and do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. But don't regard them as an enemy. Warn them as you would a fellow believer. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So let's take a second and recap where the journey has brought us the past several weeks. I love the fact that when we started this journey in Second Thessalonians, um, we started it with a video clip. Pastor Dan, I don't know if you remember, about eight, nine, ten weeks ago, we, we started our first message and we showed this video that was kind of a synopsis, a summary, if you will of what Second Thessalonians was all about, and I want to remind us of some of what we've learned. Uh, in Second Thessalonians, Paul addresses ongoing problems in the church in Thessalonica. And I love this about Paul, by the way. One of the things that I've always appreciated is that he pastors very specific issues that are happening in very specific churches in his letters. And whether that exact specific issue is happening in our church today or any other church today, the principles that he touches on are always applicable to all of us in all of our 
churches. And I love that about Paul. In this specific letter, he addresses issues, again, that he tackled in his first letter to the Thessalonians, but it seems like he keeps hearing that they're just not getting it. And so he continues to address them. You can break Thessalonians down, Second Thessalonians down into three specific areas that he covers. Three very specific themes, if you will. And those areas are, and if I had page two as page two, you would know. Those areas are, the first is, despite intense persecution, Paul again encourages them to stand firm and hold fast in the midst of the struggle. Show victory over the world by imitating Jesus' nonviolent and patient endurance. They're dealing with persecution, and he says, stand firm, hold fast, do it like Christ would do it. The second area is really the middle of the book and the, and the, the bulk of Second Thessalonians is in the midst of their persecution, and because of it, some are very worried and confused about the day and the return of the Lord. There are rumors. In fact, there's even people spreading false teachings, even written false letters as if they were from Paul, saying that they are in the time of judgment, they are in the time of the day of the Lord. Some are saying that if all of this is happening and we are being persecuted, we must have missed it. The Lord came, and we wouldn't be dealing with these things if we were on the train. And so he tells them not to fuel that apocalyptic speculation. He encourages them to recall Jesus' words in Mark 13 about the very public and obvious events that will lead to the return. And again he tells them, stand firm, hold fast. Don't be fearful, Paul says, but be faithful and hopeful and confident while waiting for Jesus' return. And then lastly, the third theme in Second Thessalonians is this third section where Paul addresses idleness. And he challenges believers to imitate Jesus' self-giving love and to not give up working, to continue to provide for themselves and the benefit of others, to not give up on community, to not give up on serving together, but to stand firm and hold fast. Paul even addressed this in his first letter to the Thessalonians, in Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Thessalonians 5. There are several ways that he talks about it. In 5.14, he says, Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak and be patient with everyone. Stand firm. Hold fast. You know, we need to have a clear picture of what is happening in the church in Thessalonica before we can really let this go this week. The church there is being persecuted. And we use that word so loosely and easily these days. We need to understand, this is not my co-workers give me a bad time because I listen to Christian music at work kind of persecution. This is not my friends don't invite me out for drinks on Friday night anymore because they found out that I'm a Christian kind of persecution. This is I haven't seen my wife since this morning. And when I rounded the corner to walk through the town square, she and three other women for our group were tied up at the stake and burning. Kind of persecution. The church had gathered in clusters, and when they met, they did so in secret, hidden away for fear of their lives. And then during the day, they would scatter, and they'd go about their business, and they would work and they would sell their goods, and they would farm, and they would do all the things they could to earn their living, their income, their food. And even along the way, they would try to spread the good news of the way. The good news. 
They would gather together and cluster and pool their resources in community. And then at night in community, they would hide away in secret for fear of their lives. And with that perspective in mind, we see two things that are happening simultaneously for the Thessalonians and why this word comes here at the end of this chapter about idleness. The first thing that we see happening, and Pastor Randy touched on this a bit last week, is directly related to what Paul addressed in the whole second section of the letter, and that is that they had become idle and lazy. Some had given up because they were confused about the second coming for a lot of them. It was really just about the fact that we'd missed it and I'm, I'm done. I'm done working. I'm done trying. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was insecurities, whatever it was. But they quit working and they quit trying to live out their faith and quit contributing to the community altogether. And the truth is that's, that's a large part of it. But the larger part of it Actually, what was happening was the second thing, and that is that there was this group of people that had fallen into what was called Roman patronage. Some of them were poor. Some of them were the outcasts. Some of them, quite frankly, were the morally corrupt of society. And they would become essentially indentured servants to rich Romans. They would go and they would work for them. They would become personal assistants. They would do their bidding. They would, they would help them bathe. They would basically be enslaved to as personal assistants. They would feed them. They would do their shopping. They would run errands. Quite frankly, they would do sexual favors. They would do their morally corrupt business affairs. All for some scraps off the table. Maybe some food. Maybe a warm place to lay my head at night. It was the Roman sugar daddy system that they were choosing to live in. And it's really a large part of this that Paul addresses. It's their lifestyle choices when he is saying, don't live off of one another. Let your work speak for itself. When he says, don't remain idle, don't feed off of others. And when he saw fearful believers giving up and feeling so hopeless that they would just opt to join this lifestyle, Paul had to address it. And it's at the end of this section where we're going to dig mostly in today. Again, in verses 14 and 15. And I I like these verses in the message translations. It says, if anyone refuses to obey our clear command written in this letter, don't let him get away with it. Point out such a person. Refuse to subsidize their freeloading. And maybe they'll think twice. But don't treat them as the enemy. Sit down and talk about the problems as somebody who cares. You know, I love the area that we live in. I love being here at the base of Mount Rainier. My wife and I are talking about potentially moving. And the truth is, we've pretty drawn a pretty small circle. We're not going to move far. We're pretty much going to stay somewhere between Puyallup, Ording, Buckley, Edgewood, Sumner, this is just kind of home for us, man. We just love this area of the Pacific Northwest. It's full of God's beauty and full of God's creation, but on the first Monday of every month at 12 noon, if you live anywhere near the valley, you're reminded that God's beauty is also full of a little bit of danger. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you live near the valley? That's right. If you live anywhere in the Oregon Puyallup Sumner Valley, you know that the Lahar warning system Blairs, every first Monday, 12 noon. It's an early warning system. 
The Lahar is one of the geological events of massive proportions, mudslides and rock slides to the size and extent that we could hardly imagine. And it's quite known that when Mount Rainier blows, and it will blow someday, the valley will be the first to go. So each month we hear the testing of this Lahar siren. It's an early warning system and a constant reminder that someday some of us are going to have the greatest view of God's best fireworks show. <laughs> and I'm kind of okay with that. What's really funny is um, most of us think, if you've ever been through like a fire drill at work, how inconvenient those are, right? I got to get away from my desk. I got to... Go down three flights of stairs. I gotta go walk through the, all the way to the other side of the parking lot. But if you are in one of the school districts in our valley, twice a year, you have to walk miles uphill to high ground as part of the Lahar early warning system. During those Lahar drills, our kids walk miles to high ground, but it's an early warning system that someday will save thousands of lives. Why do I mention that this morning? It's simple, because I believe these verses, what Paul is saying is, some of us need to be an early warning system for each other, for other believers. They've lost hope. They've grown idle. They've given themselves to Roman patronage. Who will be their early warning system? I want to touch on a couple of truths today, and this is truth number one. I'd encourage you to write it down. God calls us to love one another so much that we are willing to be each other's early warning system. That we're willing to be each other's early warning system. He calls us to be each other's early warning to warn people who are in danger of becoming spiritually unhealthy. Now, I don't know about you. But I need brothers and sisters in my life who will be an early warning system for me. And I'm thankful that I have them. I don't always like it. Don't get me wrong. I don't always like it. But I'm thankful. My marriage is better because I have brothers and sisters like that in my life. My, my kids are better because I've needed to be the kind of dad that's had brothers and sisters like that. And notice here that Paul doesn't say... He doesn't say if they find a disobedient brother, you should kick him out of the church. He doesn't say completely disassociate him. He doesn't say treat them like an enemy. That's the easy part, right? That's, that's the part where the boundaries are clear and it's easier for us to just move on because love and confront, confrontation and being true brothers and sisters is messy and that's hard. Few of us ever really enjoy confrontation. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who enjoys it. What, receiving confrontation or giving confrontation, being confronted. Some are better than others, but none of us really likes it. Nobody likes to sit down with, when there's a perceived problem and just sort of hash out everything and bring it all up. But God calls us at times to be each other's early warning system. And if that's true then the question becomes, when and how do we do this? Well, the first thing we need to know is this. You should only ever be that for a brother or sister when you know for sure that your motives are pure. I remember Colby one time having to stand before a very angry youth pastor after pulling the fire draw arm at our church. 
for probably the third or fourth time. When he was, what, second grade, third grade? He learned a lesson early on that you should only use that when your motives are true. (laughs) When there's really, really a danger. Plus it costs us 50 bucks every time you pull it. (laughs) So we need to make sure our motives are true. When we can pray about it and stand before the Father and ask Him, is our desire truly love for my brother or sister in this moment? Or am I doing this, I don't know, operating out of my own ego, operating out of my own display of authority, or my motivations, or my own insecurities, or my needs to feel superior? You see, Jesus confronted believers, but he did so, even his own disciples, knowing that he was going to lay down his life for them, regardless of their response. His love for them wasn't dependent upon their response, and he did so knowing that either way, he was going to love them to death. And can we say the same? Back in the day, in my hood, we used to say, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> so check your motivations and make sure you're acting out of love. And you can keep your love on, regardless of the response that you receive. And if your motives are pure and you're prayed up and you feel like it's time to be an early warning system, well, there's some good times to enact that, right? When a relationship with a brother or sister is broken. And now we don't all have to be best friends and perfectly mesh all of our personalities. But we do have to understand that God desires unity in the church. He even commands unity. And I know Proverbs tells us that a wise man overlooks a fault. So if we're talking about a minor thing, this is not about bringing up every little thing, every little grain of sand that you've walked on, every little... Right? If you know in your heart of hearts you can just forgive that brother or sister for that and it's not something that's going to continue, then you should just do that. Proverbs is wise that way. If you've got that capacity to not let it affect your relationship, then walk in love. But if it's bigger than that, then it's likely time to serve as somebody's early warning system. Jesus covers this actually pretty clearly in Matthew 18 where he says, if your brother or sister sins against you, you can well point out the fault just between the two of you. And if they listen, you've won them over. But if they don't listen, then take two or three others along. So that, and by the way, here Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 9. He says, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, then tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now listen here, I want you to notice in this process, in this cycle, that step one doesn't include a third party. Because the goal is not outing other people. The goal is always restoration of relationship. In fact, the minute that you're talking about somebody else to another person, you're including the third party, and now it is you who has sinned against the person that you're wanting to be an early warning system for. And let me be an early warning system for you. Don't do that. Don't do that. I've also had people ask me before when we've talked about this is, um, who should go first? I, I feel like there's a broken relationship here. I feel like I prayed about it. I feel like I've tried for months, maybe even years. I don't know. I just know it's not right. There's a chasm between me and my brother, between me and my sister. But because they're the one who initiated the offense, I've been waiting for them to come ask my forgiveness. And they just... Who initiates? 
Let me say this. If the Holy Spirit is moving on you about this relationship, then do something about it. Doesn't matter if you're the perceived offended one or the perceived offender. The goal is restoration. The goal is relationship. The person moved first should be the one to move first. And then if you feel no resolution, there's a step two. You can take your brother or sister with you. But again, I want to make sure we understand this. This is not about ganging up and trying to beat somebody into submission. This is not about overwhelming them to the point where they'll finally admit their fault. In fact, if anything, it's about doubling your love. Doubling your grace. Whelm them with the love of the church and the truth. Envelop them into who you are again. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to them through you. And if there's still no resolution, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And I want to be really clear about this too. Remember Jesus' context, the context that we're looking at today in the church of Thessalonians. This is a small group of believers absolutely reliant on one another in community, both for their safety and protection and for their sustenance. This is not about planting something on the church website or the church gossip phone list. Or This is about saying as a church, we've got a brother or sister who has forgotten the way. Let's pray for them. Let's open up our arms. Let's extend grace as a church. This is sitting down with elders and leaders and deacons in the church and saying, how can we do this? How can we show God's love even greater extent? This is about restoration and healing and unity and grace. And lastly, if restoration hasn't happened yet, Jesus says to treat them like you would a person or a tax collector. I used to love this because I used to thought, finally, the boundary. I can accept boundaries. I get lines. We finally, at some point, even Jesus draws the line, right? Now we can just close the door and lock it. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? (laughs) Yeah. Invited them in, sat with them. I have to tell you that I don't think this is about drawing a line or a boundary. I think it's about a shifting of approach. So far what God has been saying is you are a brother or a sister approaching a believer. Now what he's saying is, you know what? Their lack of response shows that they've lost belief. So now it's just time to treat them as someone who needs a Savior again. When he sat with tax collectors and when he sat with pagans, it was to introduce them to the way. It was to introduce them to Christ. It was to introduce them to the gospel, the good news. And what he's saying here is, look, it hasn't worked approaching them as a believer. So approach them as an unbeliever now. Reintroduce them to the good news. His goal is restoration. His goal has always been you. In me, are you willing to be an early warning system for another brother or sister? Let me ask you a better question. Are you willing to receive the early warning system from another brother or sister? What are some other times where we need early warning systems? Well, maybe when another brother's trapped in sin. Galatians 6 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, you might also be tempted. I love this phrase, caught in sin. It's, it's really about being ensnared, right? 
You know, it amazes me that we can scour Facebook and YouTube and see some picture of an animal who's cute and cuddly and ensnared in a trap, and our heart breaks. We'll even watch it again just so we can cry a little more. We'll send it to our friends. Isn't this so sad? You need to watch this video. We see our brother or a sister ensnared in sin, and we're so quick to just write them off. He says to restore. That's the goal. He says gently. That's the method. And if you've ever been trapped before, whether that's addiction in sin, whether that's whatever it is, you know that it totally changes your perspective. It can blind you to the truth, even the truth you've known for years. It'll mean that there are reasons, sometimes they're physical, sometimes chemical reasons why you cannot see clearly. Sometimes they're emotionally, spiritually. We can be so absolutely broken that we are not thinking rationally. And then we look at a brother or sister and we say, this is the, this, I've known this person for years. Why don't they get it? They must just be making this choice because they finally, whatever. See, we're trying to make a rational perspective and a rational solution about somebody who's not thinking rationally when you're entrapped. Few people who are cornered, few people who are trapped, even without the physical and the chemical and the other things that absolutely affect our thinking clearly, ever act rationally. Can we keep our love on? Can we be an early warning system? How about when another believer disrupts the unity in the church? Paul was frustrated with the mess that he had left Titus in in Crete. So he encourages Titus to draw some strong boundaries when he writes, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable. Warn a divisive person. Warn them a second time. The unity of the church is so crucial and critical to the Lord and His work through us that Paul not only preaches it, he models it. In fact, if you were to look through Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, you would see time that Paul people Paul even calls specific people out in his letters and admonishes them by name for causing disruption and disunity in the church. If Paul spent time this whole next month at LifeSpring Foursquare Church and he went to our home groups and he visited your home group and your Bible study and our women's ministry and our men's nights, if he came to the worship team practice in the children's team meeting and then two months from now wrote us back a letter, who might he call out by name for causing disunity in our church? Are we willing to be each other's early warning system? So all of that speaks to that first truth that I talked about, that God calls us to love one another so much that we're willing to be each other's early warning system. And our second truth this morning comes from the last two verses. Let's read those again, 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all of my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Truth number two this morning, write this down. God offers us his peace. He offers us his presence. He offers us his word. And he offers us his grace. God offers us his peace, his presence, his word, 
and His grace. He offers us His peace. What a gift. If we have ever had a week where we understand our need in our society for God's peace, it has been this week. Amen? Is there anybody in this house today that doesn't need maybe just a little extra peace in your heart and in your life? And we have to remember that peace isn't the absence of conflict. It's the tranquility in the midst of it. It's Jesus sleeping in the midst of the storm on the sea of Galilee. It's Jesus saying, in this world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. We can know peace. And He offers us His presence. And most of us know in our own minds that God is always there. But we live in constant awareness of His presence. Do we live in constant awareness of His presence. I got frustrated yesterday and angry. And I was upset about one of my kids, and I was talking to my wife about it, and that turned into yelling about the kid, and that turned into yelling about something, I don't even remember what it was, between us, and that turned into yelling about this event that we were going to last night. And... And I remember at one point my wife just going, really? I mean, really? Is this what this is all about? And, and it's like even in my mind in the moment I knew that not one of those things was that big of a deal and even altogether they were little. But I couldn't just stop. I mean, I had to go back later on and just say, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, you know. I, but in the midst of it, I could tell you this. I was not aware in that moment of God's presence. I wasn't, I, now, I know He's with me. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that that's what it means to live in constant awareness of God's presence. See, when I'm constantly aware of God's presence, those things don't even bother me. That thing with my child, oh, I could call them up and just handle it lovingly. The thing that whatever was going on between us, I could just... Love my wife in that moment like God would. The event that we went to, we could have walked in as complete ambassadors for Christ in the middle of that event instead of just sort of being there and afterwards walking away and feeling like we missed a moment. And it's because I wasn't walking in awareness. What does it mean to walk in awareness of God's presence in our life? He says, I will never leave you or forsake you, but too often I walk like he has left me. I certainly, am in that moment, am forsaking him. He offers us his word, Paul's signature. I love this about the, Paul, the letter from Paul. In, in one of his earlier letters, Paul even writes, that thing that I pass on to you is from me, but it's what God revealed to me. It's the very word of God. There was even concern, some, many people believe that Paul dictated some of his letters, so that it was important that he signed them, so everybody knew it was from him. Some people talk about Paul's eyesight, so he had to sign large. There was concern that because of the false teachings in Thessalonica, that people were passing along false letters, that they were saying were from Paul. The bottom line is this, God revealed himself to you and me and to Paul. And because Paul wrote it down, he revealed it through Paul to you and me. And Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica, and God is saying to you, I give you my word. 
I give you my word. And he offers us his grace. And oh man, I don't know about you, but I need his grace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. And I want to just take a second. I want to remind you again the context that we set forth earlier about what the church in Thessalonica was dealing with. And in the midst of that, gathered and huddled in secret and fear, he says to this, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. And in every way, the Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all of my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we know that we've been encouraged to stand firm and hold fast. But I told you that I would ask the big question. Why? Why stand firm and hold fast? Why this encouragement? Well, I'd encourage you to write this down. I firmly believe this is our why this morning. Because the things that we hope for shape the things we live for. The things we hope for shape what we live for. You see, if you're hoping in your ability to organize and get through anything at any point, then you will live like you're in control. If you are hoping for that next raise and that next time, that thing that boss has promised you for weeks, you will spend and live like you've had that next raise. And if you have lost hope in any area, you will live like you've lost hope. What are you hoping for these days? Life spring, what are you hoping for these days? What have you lost hope for? These days, how has your hope or your lack of hope, your giving up shaped what you're living for, what you're dreaming for, what you're working for? What have you hoped for these days? Once again, one last time before we leave Second Thessalonians after all these years, let's look back at the three themes that we mentioned that Paul addresses. He implores them to stand firm and hold fast in the face of persecution. The thing is, I get upset if people look at me funny because of my faith. And I'm embarrassed to ask them to come with me to church because they might say no. Are there areas where the pressure of your life and the pressure against your faith has caused you to lose your grip on hope? Paul implores him to not stop working and not give up because the Lord is tarrying. Do not grow idle. Do not live off of others. These people didn't give up on the promise of a Savior that was to be born, even after thousands of years of that promise. They didn't give up on the hope of Christ, even when they were burned at the stake. And I give up praying for my cousin when she misses church two weeks in a row. I give up praying for healing because I don't see it in the moment. And I give up on a dream when I stop feeling excited about it because my emotions have run dry. Are there areas where you've given up on something? You've given up believing for something. Given up praying for it, seeking after it. Has your lack of seeing fruition like the Thessalonians had caused you to lose 
hope. Because the things we hope for shape what we live for. Lastly, in the passages that we've been exploring today, Paul says that people have grown idle. They've given up. They've stopped serving faithfully. They've started living on others. Some of us in the church know people that have grown idle and we've given up on them. And some of us, because of our lack of hope, have grown idle and we've given up. We've given up serving the church, serving the Lord. We've given up fighting for relationship with the church. We walk away. We just go find another church. Maybe the relationships will be newer and brighter and whatever. They'll feel new again, right? Everybody likes it when it feels new again. Are there areas where you've given up on something that you were believing for, praying for? Are there areas where God has allowed you to see this morning, maybe for the first time, disunity in your heart with the church and with His mission for you? Are there people you've given up on? Relationships? Don't give up on each other. Don't give up on each other. Act as one another's early warning system. You see, throughout the book, it is clear that if we stand firm and hold fast, the things that we hope for will shape what we live for. So as the worship team comes up this morning, I want to say this to you. We've been encouraging you to stand firm and hold fast. Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica, don't give up. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope on the Lord. Don't give up hope on the things that you've been believing in. And don't give up on each other. And the Lord is saying to us this morning, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up hope on the things of the Lord. Don't give up hope on the things that you've been believing for and dreaming for and waiting for. Don't give up on my return. Don't give up on each other. So as we prepare to worship, I just want to give you a moment this morning and ask the Lord, Lord, where? Where have I given up hope? Where am I not standing firm right now? Where am I not holding fast any longer? Or maybe you need to ask the Lord, Lord, there's that relationship. I feel like it's broken. I want to mend it. I want there to be unity in my family, in my home, in my church. There's that brother or sister who came to me. Lord, I see now that they were just trying to be my early warning system, and I rejected them. I judged them. I put my hands up and said, no, I don't receive that from you. I need to go make that right. Or maybe there's that person that God's been calling you to be an early warning system for, and that's hard. That's hard. When Cindy and I were coming out of some marriage struggles, so many of you had prayed for us for so long, and I'm so thankful for it. One of the things that we had talked about was how easy I slide into what we used to call King Tut mode, where I just... I get stressed and I feel pressure from all these things in life. And so home kind of is the one place where I can just grab and put everything in control. 
and I go into King Tut mode and I just want my family to serve me and I want everything to be just in place. I've got all these problems at work. I've got all these problems at church. I've got all these problems on the soccer team. When I come home, I want everything in its place. And the demands on my family because of that attitude just are hard, hard to carry. And it didn't bring any freedom for my wife and my kids. So we were talking about it with some friends one time, and I told uh, our pastors, I told uh, my friend Darren, my cousin Darren, my brother, I told Pete Wilmot, I said, hey, I'm just going to tell Cindy. I'm just going to flat out give her the fruit. I don't want her under that pressure anymore. So I'm just going to tell her, if you ever feel like I'm in King Tut mode and you're, you're trying to talk to me about it and I'm not receiving it, you call any one of these guys. Just call them. Just take the weight off. You don't have to do it anymore. You don't have to carry it. You don't have to be the one who confronts me. You don't have to be the one to stop it. Just call one of these guys. I, I want to give you that freedom. And I told the guys, I said, you be ready. It was awesome. It just provided such release. It was incredible. I loved it. I encourage you to do it. Well, it was awesome until about a year later. I'm watching TV one night, and Pete and Monica tap on the door. Now, Pete and Monica live a half an hour away, and we spend a lot of time together, but it's not unplanned time. It's not them stopping by the house one night. We're not, like, convenient on their way home or anything. And I'm opening the door, and I'm like, hey, guys, what's up? And it just, like, hits me when they come in and sit down, and the conversation just kind of got awkward, and they didn't, they didn't really say why they were It was obvious that I didn't know why they were there, and they didn't know how to handle it. And we just had an awkward conversation, and Pete just said, Hey, how's it going, King Tut? <laughs> it's hard, right? It's just hard. Life is hard. People are messy. But I'm thankful for early warning systems in my life. I'm thankful. So this morning, I just ask you, Lord, help us to dream again. Help us not just to stand firm and hold fast for no reason, but to stand firm and hold fast because of the hope we have in you. Open our eyes to where we need to receive early warning systems in our life and where we need to be one. And God, most of all, would the thing that we hope in you, you, our hope in you, shape what we live for. Amen.